0: There is almost too much going on. I'm trying to figure out how do you put this much information into a small five-minute segment to introduce the Northern Miner podcast. Welcome, everyone. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, your intrepid host, trying to figure out what's going on on a weekly basis here. There is so much going on. We're back to this news cycle in search of a narrative. Well, I think we have our narrative. We have this Russia-Ukraine business, which... I don't even know if I want to get into here. I don't know if it's appropriate for a mining podcast, but I do have a comment on it, and the market is feeling it, and that is the context and the relevance of it. You know, I am a diehard Westerner at the core, I Western values, but I do feel the West is provoking Russia here. This idea that we're going to put Ukraine into NATO and that they should be able to do whatever they want, hey, in principle... That sounds wonderful. Yes, of course, in principle, Ukraine should be able to go into NATO. But if Russia tried to make a military alliance with Mexico, would the United States tolerate that? The head of the German Navy comes out and said, all that Putin wants is respect. And then the bureaucrats make him resign for saying this. And, you know, anybody that knows anything about military history— who knows anything about fighting, knows you have to respect your enemy no matter how evil that person may be. So I feel like these bureaucrats, they're playing with fire. And the market is feeling it. What a day yesterday, thousand points down on the Dow only to recover in the green. Gold is looking very attractive. The chorus is growing that gold is starting to look like the play. Its markets look very tentative. Gold holding at 1837. So gold looking very attractive. Crypto crashing. Gold actually is the gold trade, not Bitcoin, as it would seem, at least for now. Commodities, nickel, $10.89. So we are 53 cents higher than last week. So it continues its climb. Two weeks ago, is was at $9.40. Copper, $4.52. Tin is at $19.91. Now, two years ago, tin was at $6.94. It is currently at $19.91 per pound. So all sorts of volatility is on the menu for this year. So buckle up. We have a... Wonderful show lined up for you today. We have Rowan Reddy returning, and he talks all things macro and commodities. Very interesting discussion. I got him to drill down a bit on some of the basic commodities like copper and nickel. And also, because he's such a specialist in uranium, that is also coming up. And we have some very interesting news stories, some tragic uh, some head turning. Uh, so we've got it all, and finally we have from Boru Resources. We have the Chief Executive Officer, Dolgun Erdenabatar, and he is coming up right away here in our CEO Spotlight. And they have such an interesting strategy. Dolgun was saying it is so difficult to start a mine. We think you're way better off just getting a mine that's on care and maintenance, working with that, and you know, if anything, the community wants to support you because you're bringing the jobs back that they once had, whereas if you're trying to start something new, the community is very suspicious of you, and it's basically a lot harder, and not in my backyard, as they say, NIMBY. So I think it's quite a brilliant strategy that Dolgoon has at Boru. So that is coming right up in our CEO spotlight, so lots to look forward to. And finally, the Global Mining Symposium is coming up, in February, it's only a few weeks away. Just go to events.northernminer.com and click on the register button, and you can get registered to one of the premier mining events in the world. Registration is now open. It takes place on February 23rd and 24th. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, at the Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to our CEO Spotlight with Boru Chief Executive Officer Dolgun Erdanabatar. So, joining me today, I'm very happy to welcome Dolgun Erdanabatar, who is CEO of Boru, and he is here for this week's CEO Spotlight. Dolgun, welcome to the program. Thank you Adrian and thank you
1: for having me and uh, uh whatever you were in the world and uh, good morning or good evening yeah
0: Yeah it is evening here in Berlin it's well it's approaching evening it's 5:14 and you are in New York correct Yes I'm in New York at the moment so yeah it's in the morning It's in the morning of course yeah, yeah it's about a 6 hour difference if I recall yeah. Now I haven't heard too much I have to confess about Borut tell us about the company and what it's up to Yeah so I think
1: Borough is a startup mining company, but we have a very interesting strategy to how we're going to grow our business. And so basically what we have done since our company establishment is we made the two acquisitions, one from Sintera Gold, the Mongolian asset, and the last one is Lagunas North asset from the Barrick. And when we acquired the asset, both of the assets were in the care and maintenance. And what we are trying to do is that uh, turning around the operation, and extending a life of mine, and to try to uh, sustaining the value from the two operations as long as possible. So that's what we and uh, our team is trying to do. And first, our Mongolian acquisition was very successful, and now we are going with the Laguna Norte in Peru. And so I'm basically based in Peru, and now our flagship operation is Laguna Norte. So more
0: time spent on the Laguna Norte. Now the Sintera Gold acquisition. What year did that take place? So the Sintera Gold acquisition was
1: in 2018, and so basically Centera have been put the uh, Mongolian asset care and maintenance in 2016, and since then they want to sell and divest assets. So it's a very good opportunity for us to starting uh, with the Mongolian operation. and so it have a very good infrastructure, 5,500 tonne per day facility and the heap leach operation. So within a four months, we take over the operation. We started the heap leach and within a less than a eight months, we started the whole and meal, meal CIL operation. So now, Mongolian asset is up and running and it's uh, producing around 50 to 55,000 loads of gold per year for the next five to six years. So I think it's a very good thing and we and our team have been done that over there. And uh, so our idea is that if we have a successful in here, why we try ourselves and go outside and try to take a similar approach. So that's how we end up with the Laguna Snorte. And So it's a similar case, but we are trying to
0: do so. And where is that second mine? It's Laguna Snorte and that's in Peru. Okay, so that's why you're in Lima. So tell me about that. So you acquired that from Barrick and, and when did that happen?
1: Laguna Snorte was a world-class operation. So we have been operated uh, Barrick since uh, 2003. Up until twenty twenty one and so within a life of mine, it has been produced uh, more than uh, ten million ounces of gold and uh, used to be uh, one of the very good low cost and flagship operation by barrick and But uh, as you know, the Barrick has uh, this tier one asset policy which is Lagunas Norte is no longer for for their criteria and so that's uh, uh, how the opportunity arises at the uh, company like Apora. And so, what we inherited from Eric is a great infrastructure, great people, and a great community engagement with our surrounding uh, neighbors. And so, it's a still a producing. And the last year we have produced from Lagunas around the 60,000. And so, this year we expect to import- increase our production by at least 30%. And we have a great growth project at the Lagunas Norte. And uh, since our acquisition has been closed the last June we have done a lot of the things. I think we will, on the way, we, I can explain what kind of things and things happen. So I think it's a great jurisdiction and a great gold district and all these, Yanacocha and La Arena and all these great deposits have been surrounding the Laguna Norte. So it's a, one of the very good gold districts in the world and it have been produced more than a 25 million ounces of gold historically throughout these mines. So I think it's a great potential and the great many years of that thing, uh, extending a life of mine, not only Lagunas, but around surrounding properties.
0: That does sound quite large. So not only are you basically taking over the operation, but you see exploration potential in the surrounding area.
1: Yes, it's a really good thing is that uh, because we also inherited these very promising exploration concessions from Beric. And so one of the very good thing is that Lagunas Norte have a very great infrastructure that are able to treat the whatever type of ores and at the site. And so what we are trying to do is that the, all these exploration properties within a less than a 25-kilometer radius inside the Lagunas Norte. So we, we already started our first exploration projects at the Lagunas. And once the resource is identified, it can be quickly converted into the reserve. And we try to push it as soon as possible to win the production. So one of the good things is Lagunas Norte can be Work as it is. Processing hub for the whatever the resource identified throughout the neighboring projects. Yeah,
0: sure. And so, tell me, uh, how do you find things from a community perspective as far as dealing with the governments? Like, I mean, Latin America has become more challenging recently. Mongolia at times, it's I think it, it, I've heard some stories about it being challenging. How is that going for you as far as dealing with the locals? It's such an important part, you know, the ESG narrative, you know, the social license, as I think Mark Bristow calls it. How do you find that in your projects?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a becoming uh, far much important than for the miners rather than uh, technical solution for the deposit they, they want to develop but there is social license to operate and to get the social license from your your host governments and your communities is a very important factor that whether your success 100% depend on that so we need to admit that of course in peru not only in peru but in chile and other countries there is a, still there is a lot of noise and some of the even some of them very bold actions regarding this mining Projects and uh, mining industry, and of course, the Mongolia have uh, some history with the news in the market. And but one of the things, as a borrower, we identified is that uh, it's really getting it too difficult to build a new mine. And so, especially in terms of the these tailing storage facilities, and also going into mm-hmm. the greenfield areas to build a new mine is extremely difficult. But at the same time all the good resource and the good deposits on all these what we so-called some uh, complicated jurisdictions but the miners really need to be innovative itself so for we don't necessarily to go into the the very nice and uh, good stable jurisdiction but with what we are trying to do is that even the jurisdiction so-called have uh, some problem we try to go into invest into the ongoing or the care and maintenance operation so Expansion of the project, expansion of the operation is a totally different concept for communities and the surrounding neighbors than uh, the building a new mine from the scratch. Yeah. So as we all know that uh, in the mining, the building a mine from the scratch is a very costly and a time-consuming. So actually, one of our very underlying strategies that how about we go into the already uh, asset or area that have uh, already have uh, some mining footprint. And so which gives them so much comfort and so much foundation that we're going to expand that. So one of the things why we are looking at in these kind of assets and this kind of strategies is that also it's a have a, a indirect uh, consideration of this social license to operate. So, for example, in Lagunas Norte, Barrick has a great history and the legacy communication with the community. So it will be much giving us a very good advantage. not starting a negotiations or not understanding from the zero, but uh, just trying to continue and improving the what Barrick have done and try to uh, let ourselves know that we are responsible miners and we try to extend the life of mine, which directly means that extending opportunities for the communities for the next couple of years, I think. So this is the something that we really need to look in at. And so it's a uh, important to think about that is end of the day you can deliver what you can promise to the community because otherwise i've been operated mines in mongolia now in peru and in the end of the day and there is a great great advantage for companies that were able to let them understand themselves in a very practical and honest and straightforward way with the community so rest of them is just a, more like these technical issue that can be followed yeah
0: It's so interesting that you say that, that almost like the greater challenge, the more important situation for a miner today is the local community over the deposit, practically. And I love your strategy. I think it's brilliant to, you know, it's not some shock to a community that, okay, guys, we're going to be building something, we're going to disrupt your area. Instead, it's this already exists. If anything, we're keeping this mine open and we're keeping jobs for you. And we're just trying to extend that in a nice, as you say, kind of honest way.
1: Yeah, so I think that is the simple strategy what we're trying. So because we cannot uh, go and say within a five or six months these mountain will go away or that thing will be a forest will go away. But it's, uh, it's important that we have uh, this already uh, legacy footprint of the mining. And uh, because usually the communities who have been very close nearby to the mining operation some kind of sense that the mining is really a benefit to some other the kids have a job or kids have a better school and better water facilities and at the end of the day the mining creates a lot of tangible effect to the neighboring community so i think that's the, something we all need to be aware of that and so it's important that uh, you just uh, say that it's a both for the company and both for the community it's a win-win situation yeah it's nothing like a somebody lose on the way. So that is the, I would say,
0: on these issues. So in closing here, Dolgun, tell us the roadmap. Like, what do you hope to achieve with the company? Where do you sort of see it in a year and maybe in five years? Where is this going?
1: Yeah. So in terms of the growth of the companies, we have a very clear strategy. So we have a, this five-year strategy that within a five years, we're going to be a mid-tier producer, gold producer. And so right now, our combined production profile is more or less than 100,000 tons of gold. So within a current project of CMOP, we're able to increase our production from Lagunas Norte from 60,000 to 160,000 tons of gold per annum for at least the next uh, six to seven years of life of mine. And then we have a, the great resource, what we call these refractory ores of the Lagunas Norte. So Barrick uh, have done a lot of great studies and a lot of the historical analysis, how we're going to treat that. And so that resource is almost uh, two, uh, three million units of gold. And so now we're already working on how we're going to extend beyond our life mine from 2027 or 2028. So this is the something uh, we are working at the moment because the current CIMO project, basic engineering finished, feasibility done, early works started. We already have a construction and operation permit from the Peruvian government always going on and so the first gold pour from CMOP will be the fourth quarter of the, this year and so we really need to look beyond our horizon from the CMOP project so I think then it will give us a very good profile in terms of the production scale and the next we also at the same time looking into the different kind of uh, opportunities regarding how we're able to buy uh, some other uh, assets from other companies not only in Peru, but also in the South America and North American region. And so it, it will give us a, you know, we, we're going to use our these project execution and also with these some M&A opportunities to grow our companies. And hopefully I think we can able to be a meteor producer within a time frame that we are targeting. So I think it's a quite a possible plan that we are stick with.
0: Well, it sounds like a great time to be in the gold market. And again, I love the strategy. It's very pragmatic. So if people want to find you, are are you a public company? Is there a ticker uh, that people can find online?
1: Yeah. So I would say one of the great thing about the borrower is we're not public yet. And there is uh, many opportunities that who like the strategy and who like the company uh, on the way. And so we actually, it's a uh, Great time. Have a discussion with you. And we are looking for some public listing opportunities in Canadian market. And and so we are looking different strategic positions that are able to support our five-year strategy to become a much bigger company. And so I think next interview and the next uh, engagement with us will be more explaining our plan on that and how we're able to make realize that our plan to be a public so.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, Delgun Erdinabatar, Chief Executive Officer of BORU, thank you for joining us on the Northern Minor Podcast. Thank you, Adrian. It's uh, great to have a discussion with you. Great, and, and you as well. And if people want to go to your website, it's b-o-r-o-o-m-c dot com dot s-g. And turning to the website, more than 100 injured and at least a dozen dead. After blast in Ghana's mining region, and this is by Naimul Karim for the Northern Miner, at least 13 people have been killed and more than 100 injured after a vehicle carrying explosives to a gold mine exploded after colliding with a motorcycle in western Ghana. Police and government officials say police say the truck was carrying explosives to the Chirano gold mine, 90% of which is owned by Kinross Gold, when the collision took place near the town of Bogoso, located about 250 kilometers away from the country's capital, Accra. According to Kinross, the vehicle was owned by Maxim, a company that specializes in energetic materials, including blasting solutions for mining and quarrying. Quote, the authorities' investigation is ongoing regarding the Maxim vehicle, and we are not in a position to comment at this time, end quote. Kinross spokesman Louis Diaz told the Northern Miner in an email quote, we extend our condolences to all those affected by this tragedy and will provide support to the response efforts and provide relief to those affected, end quote. Maxam was not immediately available for comments. Ghana's Vice President mudu Bawumia, who visited the site after the blast, said that the government was working with mining companies to support the region's residents, quote, a major disaster has befallen us. Not only the community here, it has befallen... The whole of Ghana. We express our deepest condolences to those who have lost their lives. So far, we fear that at least 13 people have died. The numbers will change as we get more information. So super tragic event happening in Ghana. It looks like an accident pretty clearly from at least the way officials are describing it. Also in Africa, we have this coup in Burkina Faso. And despite the coup, Endeavor Mining and Fortuna Silver are continuing their operations. This is also by Naimul Karim. Endeavor Mining and Fortuna Silver Mines say their mines in Burkina Faso have not been affected after a military junta seized control of the country and detained its president. More than a dozen soldiers announced on state television on January 24th that they had seized control of the West African nation and detained President Rock Mark Christian Kaboré. Following a day of gun battles in the capital, according to the Associated Press, the group of soldiers cited the president's inability to control the deteriorating security situation in the country amidst a deepening Islamic insurgency. The soldiers also said that those who have been arrested, quote, are being held in a safe place with respect for their dignity, end quote. It definitely is a security issue out there in West Africa. In a statement, Kaboré's political party accused the soldiers of trying to assassinate the president and another government minister, and said the presidential palace in the capital of Ouagadougou who remains surrounded by, quote, heavily armed and hooded men, end quote. Burkina Faso is home to a number of mines operated by mining companies. Fortuna, which owns the Yeromoko gold mine in Burkina Faso, said its operations continue as normal and that the, quote, current political situation, quote, has not affected its workforce and associated supply chains. Endeavor Mining, which has five out of its seven mines in the West African countries, said its mines and projects, quote, continue to operate as usual and have not, quote, been affected by the current political situation. The company continues to monitor the situation and will provide updates as and when appropriate. So... A coup in Burkina Faso, so all sorts of turmoil around the world, really. And I guess we could say, unsurprisingly, gold rally defies traditional headwinds. It's by Henry Lazenby. Bank of America expects the gold price rally to persist despite a challenging macro backdrop. Gold continues trading above $1,800 an ounce, despite the respective 10-year interest rates and dollar index rising from inter-year lows. The bank views the sustained price performance as, quote, remarkable, since yields in the dollar tend to be the most critical price drivers of the yellow metal. Further supporting the gold price are investment flows, which have been, quote, very resilient, according to B of A analyst and lead author Michael Widmer. In the bank's Global Metals Weekly report, he said gold had disconnected from its traditional drivers because of significant dislocations buried beneath headline inflation interest rates, and currency moves. These market forces raise the appeal for investors to hold gold in a portfolio. B of A expects the gold price to average $1,925 per ounce in 2022. So you can read all about that on the Northern Miner. But yeah, it is becoming an increasingly popular trade, uh, the gold trade, especially as markets seem kind of toppy. I mean, who knows where the markets go, but I've heard predictions... More and more common predictions of a down year in stocks and an up year in gold, which doesn't sound crazy. Fortune Minerals plans Alberta Cobalt Refinery, and this is by Alicia Hyatt. Fortune Minerals intends to buy a defunct steel processing plant in Alberta and turn it into a cobalt refinery. Well, it's always great to hear these stories. Like, Canada, again, seems to be getting the message, and they seem to be picking up the pace In just getting a homegrown mineral industry, and not just in terms of mining, but in terms of processing, the company says the plant, which it will purchase for $5.5 million, will significantly reduce the cost of developing its Nico Cobalt Gold Bismuth Copper Project in the Northwest Territories. Fortune has signed an agreement with JFSL Field Services to acquire the site northeast of Edmonton. Subject to a six-month period of additional due diligence, the hydrometallurgical refinery it plans to build at the site would process concentrates from NiCo and produce cobalt sulfate for use in the manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries. If we skip down to the bottom, the plan is in line with both Canada's and Alberta's plans for economic diversification in the West. Value-added processing in Canada and domestic supply of critical metals. And we have a quote from Jason Kenney, premier of Alberta, quote, cobalt, lithium, and nickel are all minerals with huge demand in the modern world. Fortune's new refinery is exactly the type of job creating diversifying investment we envisioned with our mineral strategy and action plan. Well, that's just music to the ears. I'm getting optimistic, really, of... Both federal and provincial. And you know what's great about this? Uh, Those are different parties. They both seem to be getting the message on the mining processing opportunity. This idea that we don't just take it out of the ground, but we do more with it. Both parties, this seems to be a bipartisan issue, maybe because it's popular, maybe just because it's a good idea, but it's great to see. And also... Another update. Rio Tinto and Mongolia settle feud over Oyu Tolgoi copper mine. And this is from Reuters via mining.com. It says Rio Tinto and the Mongolian government said on Tuesday, they've reached an agreement to end a long running dispute over the $6.93 billion expansion project for the Oyu Tolgoi copper gold mining project. And Rio chief executive... Jacob Stausholm said, quote, It's a major relief. It's a huge step forward for us. We are very comfortable with this outcome, and more than anything, achieving a full reset of the relationship. As part of the deal, Turquoise Hill will waive $2.4 billion in debt owed to it by the Mongolian government. And of course, Rio Tinto owns a 51% stake in Turquoise Hill. Now, Mongolia owns 34%. But yeah, so... If we look, as part of the deal, Turquoise Hill will waive $2.4 billion in debt owed to it by the Mongolian government. So Rio Tinto gets to keep its debt, but the Mongolian government will not have to pay the debt. Now, to be fair, this project was seen as having major cost overruns, and who knows the reality of that? But it's not crazy to think that that actually happened. Who knows? But anyway, they're putting it behind them. And a Canadian story relating to neolithium, Chinese takeover of neolithium, quote, irrelevant to national security interests, says Liberal MP. And that was because a conservative politician came out criticizing uh, the neolithium takeover by China's Zijin Mining, saying that there should be a national security review, which normally I would kind of agree with. I mean, not knowing too much about it, but when you actually listen to what the Liberal MP has to say, Andy Fillmore... He was speaking to a House of Commons, and this is by Naimul Karim. Speaking to a House of Commons committee on January 20th, Fillmore said that Neolithium is, quote, not really a Canadian company, end quote. He added that the company's, quote, increasingly dubious, end quote, project in Argentina would not produce the kind of lithium required to meet the increasing demand for electric vehicles. And another quote, this really is not a Canadian company. It's an Argentinian company. It's got its directors in the U.K., it had what might have been three Canadian employees on paper. The only reason it had any Canadian toehold was to have its presence in the TSX in hopes of raising money. And quote, said Fillmore, adding the transaction was, quote, irrelevant to Canada's national security interests. I don't know if I'd call it irrelevant, but I think we can take his point that, you know, some of these companies just list in Canada for the stock listing, and theoretically Canadian, but practically speaking really might not have much of a toehold. And I I think the crucial thing here from this whole resource nationalism perspective is the project is in Argentina. And this is what he says. Furthermore, he said that Neolithium's Quebrades Lithium Brine Project, known as the 3Q Project, is in Catamarca, Argentina. So it's not like it's in Canada. I think at that point, it's like the claims to do a national security review on an asset that's not even in Canada, well, it starts to get a little bit more stretched, shall we say. And finally, this is something we haven't talked enough about, is lithium. Lithium, the price hits, quote, ludicrous mode as battery metal extends 400% gain. So We need to start talking more about lithium on this podcast. This is something that we have underreported, and we touched on it a couple of times, but really, we need to be focusing a little more on lithium. And it says here, lithium prices are continuing their breakneck ascent in China, with surging electric vehicle sales underpinning a five-fold gain over the past year. Chinese lithium carbonate prices tracked by Asian Metal Inc. rose to a fresh record on Monday, as data showed a 35% month-on-month jump in electrical vehicle registrations in December there's a chart here where you see the price of lithium carbonate following very closely the demand for electric passenger car sales in China. And continuing, but with lithium prices blowing past previous records, there's a growing risk that raw material inflation could soon create headwinds for the burgeoning industry. Bloomberg NEF predicts a 2% rise in battery pack prices this year, potentially pushing out the point at which electric vehicles will reach cost parity with conventional cars to 2026, two years later than it earlier forecast. So, interesting, interesting, and don't forget about Rio Tinto saying that the world needed 60 JADAR mines that was in Serbia, and that has been blocked. It actually says this in this article. Last week, Serbia blocked plans for Rio Tinto's JADAR mine in a dramatic response to local opposition to the project that's set to pile more pressure on future supply. And Rowan brings this up in our interview. And I wish I'd went a little bit more into lithium with him. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to Metal Prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And before we begin, let's just take a look at the 10-year bond. It is at 1.785%. That is 0.04% lower than last week. So stabilizing a little bit, basically where it was two weeks ago after the very fast run up the last couple of weeks. And if we turn to our precious metals, gold is trading at $1,842.91 per ounce. That is $27 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $23.82 per ounce. That is $0.85 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,020.87 per ounce. That is $50 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,164.51 per ounce. That is almost $300. What do we have here? That is $286 higher than last week. So palladium back above $2,000 in force. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.52 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading five cents higher at a dollar forty per pound. Lead is a penny higher at a dollar nine per pound. Nickel is fifty-three cents higher at ten dollars and eighty-nine cents per pound. Tin is at nineteen dollars and ninety-one cents per pound. That is a dollar thirty-eight higher than last week. And cobalt is also higher at thirty-two dollars and thirty-eight cents per pound. That is sixty-seven cents higher than last week. And zinc is six cents higher at a dollar sixty-seven per pound which I believe is the highest number we have here. Oh, no, we had a seventy-two about three months ago. So it is the second highest. So wind and all of metal sales, industrial and precious metals alike. Gold, very healthy at $1,842. Silver coming along for the ride. Palladium back above $2,000. Platinum back above $1,000. Copper near at the top of its range, aluminum near the top of its range. Almost everything is near the top of its range with nickel and tin fully breaking out from their previous highs. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Rohan Reddy, who is a research analyst at Global X ETFs. And he has been on the program several times, and we have a wide-ranging interview from the macro to the micro. And it's quite fascinating always to get Rowan's opinion. We touch on some of the bigger metals as well as uranium, where he is also specialized. So there's lots to chew on here. I hope you enjoy the interview and we will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rohan Reddy, Research Analyst at GlobalX ETFs. Rohan, welcome back. Hey, Adrian. Great to be back. It's really great to have you. I mean, what a dramatic time in the market. I think yesterday things were up really high and then they closed down really low. It's a very volatile time in the markets. And meanwhile, commodities seem to be doing great. And you are right at the heart of the commodities story. And so so how are things going with you? How, how is business right now as we start the new year?
2: Business is doing well, especially in the commodity space. I think a lot of the volatility we're seeing in the equity and the debt markets is sort of funneling some money towards the commodity-based assets. And that's definitely raised uh, client questions maybe more so than we've seen prior years. So really great time to be in the commodity space.
0: That is my impression. As I was saying to you before we started this, it seems as if commodities are kind of like this year's easy trade in terms of... Last year and a half, it was stocks and maybe crypto were kind of like the obvious trades, if you could say that. And now it just seems like that's, the the, you know, it's like the wind is in its sails, whereas stocks look very tentative and unsure. The bond market, who knows, you know, it's been very moving very quickly, the 10-year bond. So I imagine business is good. So what stands out to you, I guess, to ask you just a very general question right now, and then we can kind of dig a little deeper. But is there anything that really stands out to you as we navigate or sail through this volatility?
2: Well, I think it's what you said, Adrian, that we're seeing a lot of late cycle indicators in the market right now, which may feel scary to some investors. But I think the important thing to note is there's a lot of opportunity that comes with that. So as you said, in the prior years, stocks and equities have uh, really been the strong trade with low rates set by central banks around the world. Now the big change is there's been you know rate hiking activity or tapering plans from other types of central banks globally. And so there's a clear theme that we're going to see a liftoff in rates now that inflation gets a lot stickier in the U.S. CPI numbers just came in at 7%, which is obviously well above expectations that central banks usually set, so it's on them to make sure the economy doesn't really run hot here. But I do think that's probably going to lead to, as we've already started to see, a rise in treasury and bond yields. And so, for investors, that raises the question of, you know, where do you camp out and where do you position your assets during this time when equity volatility might start to increase and you know, bond market seems like a tough place to be if rates start to rise. So. Commodities is coming back into vogue after you know we've seen in the last 10 years plus, it's been a little more of a challenging space to be in. I think what we are seeing is the COVID pandemic as it changed a number of different industries. Uh, it also affected uh, the commodity space somewhat for the better too, in a way, because a lot of production that was keeping the market oversupplied in the commodity space has now actually uh, been pulled back. And so you know, you saw markets that were clearly in surplus now go into uh, deficits. So we do think there's been uh, some repositioning of money starting to go into various metals and commodities. And so for investors, it shouldn't necessarily mean that you know cash is the end-all be-all during a rising volatility environment, but there are opportunities elsewhere. We are seeing also some movement into uh, value and in cyclical stocks. So Uh, There are places to park money, even though it may seem like, you know, broader markets are selling off to start the year.
0: And how do you think of, say, like the deflationist point of view that this inflation will sort of wash itself out in the next, you know, six months to a year? I don't know if that's like in your bailiwick, so to speak. What do you think of that? Because it seems to me as someone who might have a close eye on the uh, supply lines, that to me, it seems like it's a real supply demand issue. And in a sense, I've sort of separated. To me, it's not necessarily the money printing, which maybe a lot of people would find a controversial thing to say, but I feel like there's a really physical, concrete issue with the inflation. It has to do more with supply. Does any of this resonate with you? No, I think
2: what you're saying is exactly part of why inflation has been very high and why it's probably going to be high for the future. I think. If we back up last year, the real question was whether inflation was, quote, transitory, as uh, the Fed had said they believed it was, you know, coming out of the COVID pandemic and the base effect and maybe the fact that the economy had basically come to a full standstill stop in 2020, which is why numbers to start 2021 were getting a little bit high. But it's become clear that, you know, even though certain fiscal measures to help consumers out uh, had started to roll off, which is part of the reason why, you know some of those expectations were transitory in nature that a lot of the issues we're seeing uh, which brought inflation you know from all the way from 1.4% at the end of 2020 uh, now to you know 7% now that some of these are really sticky issues and the most notable one is supply chain issues That was forecasted in the beginning to be something that maybe was only a COVID issue. And as companies started to plan out properly and forecast, they could address some of those issues. But now all the commentary we're seeing from management teams and companies involved in uh, the supply chain process, not just in commodities, but across multiple industries, It seems like these issues are going to be pervasive for the rest of 2022 and even to some companies going into 2023. So this may not necessarily be super long term, but it's not like something that's going to go away overnight for the foreseeable future. So we do think supply chain issues are like really part of the problem that are driving inflationary pressures higher. The second thing is tight labor markets. So mm. it's very hard to hire people right now, and in intensive supply industries, as you mentioned, you still need, uh, you know, a physical presence for a lot of those industries, or even specialized needs uh, for people to sort of man those specialized processes. And right now, companies are saying either it's very difficult to hire people, and all the unemployment data is showing that, you know, U six data is very low unemployment headline numbers are low right now for the consumer and for you know the the labor worker it's pretty easy right now to be in control and so that's driving wages higher and so that's compressing margins for some companies and forcing them to think about you know whether they want to increase uh, production or not we just saw what happened with Peloton yesterday for example where they were stopping production for a number of different reasons but those are some of the issues that are plaguing companies right now, you know, supply chain issues, labor market. And then the third thing, which I think has sort of flown under the radar, just because some of the numbers have been a little bit choppy, but the consumer is still doing very well. So the, you know, thought was coming out of COVID and the fiscal measures that the government had put in place, that, you know, these would be short term bumps, because they were essentially getting free money from the government. That hasn't necessarily proved to be the case. If you look at like, what the Fed publishes from uh, household wealth data and unemployment numbers, the consumer is still doing very well and spending has generally been pretty strong, albeit it's been redirected into you know different parts of the market, whether it's instead of actual goods, more to like services and entertainment. But right now we're seeing, just given that wages are high and the consumer is really strong, it's a combination of inflationary pressures that are being driven by a crux of Supply chain issues, uh, labor market tightness, and now a fairly strong consumer. So, you know, in terms of how to combat that, I think the Fed is going to have to walk a tight line and other central banks around the world are going to have to walk uh, a tight line. I mean, we saw UK inflation data come in the other day that was very high, too. They're probably going to have to be hawkish, of course, but They're going to have to be careful not to raise rates too fast in order to derail the economy because we've been at close to zero interest rates for the better part of um, the last like 10 to uh, 12 years or so. So I think that's going to be the real question in terms of policy risk and whether that derails the global economic momentum.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's almost like they need to slow down the economy enough to hurt demand while not crashing the economy at the same time right? Because it's almost like demand is too much. But I don't want to get too far into the macro as fascinating as it is. Let's go into the metals a little bit. Now you cover a wide assortment of metals. You're not just a uranium analyst. Like do you cover, say, nickel and copper, for example?
2: We directly cover copper, silver, oil, gas, and a couple others. Yeah, nickel is part of like the processes into lithium. We offer another fund into there. So yeah, we, we do cover a wide variety yeah. of metals.
0: Okay, great. So tell me what stands out to you, first of all. Like For me, the nickel price is really a standout tin I was looking at. And uh, even copper, I mean, I have CNBC in front of me here at $4.55 a pound. That seems like a bit of a breakout or, or close to it. How are you feeling about, uh, say, nickel and copper and these big industrial metals?
2: Yeah, nickel, the real story that's been happening recently is you know, twofold. I think there's been obviously uh, just a lot of euphoria about electric vehicles and batteries and things like that, which are certainly driving nickel prices. But The real driver has been uh, some of the commentary we've seen from the London Metal Exchange about uh, super low inventories. And we saw the same thing about copper come up a few months ago as well. So Again, this is all somewhat related to COVID as well and the disruptions in mining supply where inventories are now at record low levels. So until those inventories start to get replenished, and we could start to see that, you know, as some of these projects start picking up more um, and they start coming online more. But the supply squeeze is really the issue that's driving nickel prices right now. And I think, you know, as an investor, the question is... Is this an obvious high uh, just because technical pressure is pushing it that high or could prices move up a little bit further from here? I think it's possible nickel prices, at least in uh, the short term, could hit a little bit higher. But in terms of if you're looking for like an attractive entry point, that may be a little bit challenging for now because once those uh, inventories start to get replenished, uh, you could see prices come back. I think on the rest of the supply chain, though, it could be good for something like a lithium, uh, just because mm. you know battery prices start to move down. That'll drive electric vehicle demand because you would hope that prices would start to fall on to the end consumer for electric vehicles a little bit further, and that could help out you know demand for lithium. So we are still fairly bullish on lithium, and then copper. I think copper has been a, a fairly interesting spot to be in uh, since COVID because. It was almost you know, a too-good-to-be-true trade when COVID hit because you know, inventory started going down, supply chains started getting disrupted. But the economy rebounded in fairly snapback fashion with China leading the way because they handled COVID very well. Now, it's been a little bit choppier recently because even though inventories are still extremely low and supply is only starting to like, pick back up recently... You know, there has been some geopolitical pressure. Chile just had a leftist government Mm. that was elected. And so there are issues around royalties there and what that could mean for copper projects in Chile, as we know. About 40% of all copper supply comes from Peru and Chile. So, you know, those countries really drive a vast amount of what goes on in the copper market. And the second thing is what we were discussing at the top, Adrian, about China and the fact that unlike virtually all other central banks around the world, China has been fairly dovish recently. So they've been lowering rates and trying to stimulate their economy and expand after you know, the issues that they had uh, in the market last year. And so they're trying to expand their economy and grow. And we know that half of all global copper demand comes from China. So as factory activity starts picking up, you would believe that copper would be in a pretty good spot to be in right now, just because if Chinese demand picks up and you know, some of these supply numbers are a little bit slow to come back uh, online, that could still drive copper prices. And we are also bullish on you know the net effects of what could happen with the US infrastructure bill and just driving demand um, from that off of some of the fiscal stimulus that's taken place. So right now, for some of these metals, it's a pretty good time to be in the market.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. so many things I'd like to touch on. I mean, there's that point you made that maybe the entry isn't the best this may look like an easy trade but you i think you bring up a really actually it's almost a profound point that this isn't necessarily the best entry right now as things like maybe it is i mean some people like to buy the breakout and then it keeps going uh, but they're not exactly like you know nickel's not exactly at it the cheapest it's been in the last 2 years in fact it's at the highest it's been in the last 2 years and so that's interesting and also this idea of china easing i mean i don't recall in my you know last 10 or 15 years of paying attention to this i don't recall central banks this large like say like the i guess it's the pboc or the, the chinese central bank working in the opposite direction as the federal reserve and you know especially in this inflationary environment it, it's it's a very unusual situation
2: For sure. I think there's a couple of, I'll start with the second question. There's a couple of pressures, you know, with China that are a little bit different compared to the rest of the world. First, they've had, you know, almost a zero tolerance COVID lockdown, you know, as we've seen recently. A lot of countries are looking to, quote unquote, deal with it as best they can, whether it's like mask mandates. But at the end of the day, keeping the economy running. Right. That's uh, what they're trying to do. China has been a little bit more hardline about it and so that's slowed down some demand that they had previously you know been bringing to the market and in response to that you know they've been looking to stimulate the economy any way that they can just because of the fallout from both covid and also some of the issues that we've seen recently in the credit markets and also the property markets that you know had really benefited from very accommodative monetary policy and just a uh, lending criteria so China is, I would say, sort of in a league of its own in terms of both its economy and how it's treating monetary policy right now. So it's certainly possible in the future, they could become more hawkish if these measures lead to uh, increasing demand. But that's sort of the reason why China's uh, working in the opposite of uh, the rest of the central banks around the world right now. And, you know, talking about some of the pressures, I think, there is a little bit of political pressure that we sort of need to keep into account here just because China has you know really sold uh, politically to its people that uh, they will sort of continue to grow uh, the economy and that alleviates you know other issues that might be there, whether social or other issues, albeit. And so there is less of a tolerance of slowing the economy in China than there is maybe in other more developed pockets of the world where more established institutions and policies are in place. So that's some of the reason why China is a little bit different, I think. And then on the first point about you know the entry point into copper and uh, other areas like nickel. So I do think if you're looking as an asset allocator and an investor and a way to sort of play this market... There are certain metals that, of course, if you look at a chart or you look at just moving averages or something, they look clearly a lot more expensive than maybe you would like. But at the same time, I think it's important to evaluate the fundamentals, which we've spoken about about you know growing demand and uh, a growing you know e- economy coming out of COVID and just the supply chain issues. So that's you know part of it. And then the second thing is. For some investors, maybe it's just better to invest across a broader bucket of commodity assets, right? Like whether it's within equities like miners, which we've discussed uh, multiple times on this show as being uh, very attractive, you know, whether it's copper miners, uh, uranium, something along those lines, or a broad basket of commodities, which a lot of investors opt to do you know, from an asset allocation perspective if they don't feel comfortable picking specific commodities. So the good news is, as we mentioned at the top of the show too, there's a lot of options today, even though it seems like a lot of assets are either overpriced or it may seem like they could be due for a drawdown. Um, I think there's multiple ways to play this. And so personally, from my perspective, I think one way to look at it would be to buy maybe metal miners, whether it's, you know, copper, silver, and also uranium, and then, you know, allocate towards a broader basket of that just to mitigate some of the risk that might come with an individual single commodity.
0: Yeah, diversification. I think you're right. And, you know, the you could also take the view, say, you know, the opposite of what I said. It's like Bitcoin at $20,000. Are you going to say, oh, it's at the high end of its range? And there it goes off to to higher numbers. Now, an interesting story that I came across, maybe you've already heard it, this deal that Tesla made with Talon Metals. And what was so interesting about this, and it was to get nickel, from what I understood of that story, they weren't locking in a price. They were simply locking in the supply. And, you know, having read mining stories for the last 10 years, I've never seen a story, I don't think, where like Ford or GM or Chrysler Uh, made a deal maybe a a japanese or a korean car company making a deal but i don't recall a north american uh, car company making a deal with a you know almost a small miner like talon metals to secure supply what did you think about that and do you think we're going to see more of that
2: yeah i think it's twofold first you know if you look at tesla it's been a very good stock for the better part of the last few years But one of the challenges they've had is production, right? So production has been some of the reason why, you know, maybe they haven't sold as many cars as uh, they would have liked and Elon Musk uh, has hoped for. And so what they've been trying to do is really be able to secure enough lithium and enough uh, inputs into those batteries like nickel to be able to reach their ambitious goals that a lot of investors have, you know, priced into the stock. So We've spoken about how supply has really been a big part of the issue in the mining space, and nickel is not really immune to that either. So for a lot of end customers, the goal right now is how can I get uh, the supply of these metals uh, in a cost-conscious way but do so where it's not going to inhibit my business operations? even though it may seem like the prices uh, you know, might be less attractive in the future if they start going up a little bit further and maybe the prices need to be negotiated a little bit differently depending on contracts, the real issue is how do we secure the supply itself? So I think some of these companies are taking more of a wait and see approach where they're saying, listen, we're willing to pay a little bit more, even if it's more detrimental to our business in the future, just because we need to secure this supply today to be able to actually run our supply chains effectively. And so Tesla has been doing this. I would expect that. Other companies and other spaces will start to have to do this in the foreseeable future, just as you know, prices start going up and you start seeing some of those mining companies realize like they're sitting on a quote unquote gold mine, uh no pun intended, just because they've got a lot of the raw materials that some of these companies require. So what it could mean in the future is number one, you see more of these contracts start to come up uh, in place, not just by Tesla, but even by you know, smaller and more mid-sized companies. And the second is we could see contracts that have a little bit more unique terms maybe than before, whereas, you know, maybe before there may have been a roadmap on how these contracts are done. Now you could see some more different types of contract terms being reached by uh, customers and the raw materials companies.
0: It's almost like a partnership. I think you're absolutely right, because when you dig into that Talon Metals metal story, Tesla is going to be helping them with processing the metal so that's super interesting so it's kind of funny like i think of the last 10 years like say 2010 to 2020 when people would talk about resource scarcity it was like this cassandra speech you know but interestingly it's kind of feels like we if we're not there maybe but it seems like we're a step closer to that whole kind of resource scarcity mindset now, I don't know if you have a comment on that, but other than that, I, I want to ask you about uranium. Do, do you have a comment on that?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, ultimately what's different about this business compared to other types of businesses that you know are not
0: physical based.
2: I mean, let's take two types of companies. You've got software companies and you've got resource companies. Software companies don't necessarily need like a physical placehold like resource companies do in order to you know have strategic objectives that give them competitive advantages right because they can just source customers uh without necessarily having like physical land ownership one of the advantages of being a resource company is once you own a property or you own a certain part of land that's undeveloped that you are planning on developing there is really a bit of a challenge for some of those customers um because it's not like they can just go to another software company right mm-hmm. um, they need the supply of those underlying commodities or those raw materials to be able to achieve their objectives so that's why I think as you mentioned you know resource scarcity it may not persist over a longer period of time as more money is being redirected into these spaces by investors and people who obviously see that there could be a looming resource scarcity but for the foreseeable future this could be something that, really challenges uh, some of those end customers like auto companies um, as supply chain issues start to persist.
0: That is very interesting. It, it's Yeah, the tables have turned. The miners were not in a great position in the last 10 years, and now it seems like they're in a much greater position of power. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uranium, as you know so much about that space from previous interviews we've done. I was looking at the chart. I was looking at Cameco's uranium uh, tracking the uranium price. Interestingly, it's come down a little bit in January and so is Cameco, the stock. Now, what's your read on uranium these days? I'm sure we have a ton of super enthusiastic uranium investors that listen to the show. How are you feeling about the uranium market right now?
2: Yeah, I think some of the sell-off was just natural just because the price run-up had been so vast uh, so quickly. I mean, if we back up to the second half of 2021, the real story in that whole space was uh, the Sprott physical trust entering the space right so we had not really had much of a physical market like before that and so when you start to uh, get a massive financial buyer buying up you know you know close to let's say half of uh, what the demand for that would have been over the course of time uh, since they launched i mean that drove uranium prices almost to parabolic levels and so now that some of the buying has started to slow down and the upsizing of some of those shelves have started to slow down a little bit, that's also kind of cooled off uranium prices. And I think uranium has also got caught up a little bit in the risk-off trade just to start mm-hmm. the year, even though commodities are doing very well. A lot of that is focused within oil and gas and the metal space. So uranium, it doesn't fit in you know, perfectly into some of those trades. And also liquidity uh, in the space is some of a bit of an issue right now. So, you know, Mm -hmm. they are a lot of these companies are small caps and small caps, uh, as we can see with like the Russell 2000, for example, have sold off to start the year. So I think it's gotten caught up in some of the um, investor unwinding and some of that trade. But, you know, looking out into the future, we are still pretty bullish on the space for a few reasons. First, this market is still expected to be in a deficit for, you know, the next couple of years, just as some of these companies are still a little bit slow to keep up with uh, nuclear demand and, you know, mining activity has not picked up as much as we would have expected. I think also, you know, as we saw with the issues with Kazakhstan uh, to start the year, there could be some major supply disruptions, either, you know, just for the short term, which it seems like it will be in that country. But a lot of uranium production is very top heavy, right? So like, uh, Kazakhstan, Canada, Australia, I think any sort of disruption to one of those markets could cause an issue, you know, not forecasting that that's going to happen, but those are some of the industry dynamics and then uh, second, uh, a lot of the growth that we've seen in the nuclear reactor space, it's being driven by Asia. I mean, China is the big one. Um, they've been, uh, very aggressive in some of their climate change goals. and So nuclear reactors are still fitting into that. So that is not really going away anytime soon. And then I think also we've been seeing some developments in Europe that are a little bit different from, you know, last time we spoke, uh, in late September, right? Uh, we've seen electricity prices in countries like France and Germany have really just taken off and so that's raising costs tremendously to end consumers and so it's causing a bit of political angst too for politicians there and so countries you know like Germany and like France that had previously been negative on uranium are starting to either say they're reevaluating or have changed their tone And if that is the case, you know, that could take some share away from other types of energy sources like solar and wind, which are probably the long term wave of the future, but are also more expensive today. And so it's more challenging to implement. And I think what we've seen is if you don't really have a plan on how to implement clean energy properly, Uranium and nuclear energy is, you know, a good segue and a good gateway to be able to achieve those goals because it's fairly proven, uh, it's becoming a lot more safer especially compared to, you know, the last 10, 20, 30 years and it's a reliable source of power because the capacity factor is much higher than uh, solar and wind. So, I think those are some of the long-term and short-term dynamics that are picking up in the market. And then the third is and this is you know what we discuss more on the macro side at the top of the show just generally commodity prices are starting to go up right so uranium is uh, benefiting from some of those trends and you know because of the undervalued and depressed uh, price levels that we saw you know over the last 10 years prior to covid there's still a long way to go with the inflation trade and also just with getting some of these assets back to fair value. So I still think for the next uh, couple of years, uranium is a very attractive place to be.
0: Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more, especially on the European side of things. I mean, I had a friend, a friend of a friend basically show me, literally show me his bill. He lived in, in Spain, his energy bill, and it had gone up like four acts in like five months now. You know, it's winter versus summer, but they need air conditioning in the summer in Spain. He definitely thought something was going on. So I think the appetite is a a little uh, better for nuclear right now than maybe it was before in Europe. Now, just a final question, Uh, the fly in the ointment for me is on the whole, let's say buying, say mining stocks is this oil price, because we had a interview with Mark Bristow that was on the program about two or three months ago, and he was almost talking as if the gold market, the gold miners had hit a peak. And I I think what he meant was in terms of margins, because now that inflation was coming in and his costs were getting higher, uh, margins are getting compressed because of, say, these high oil prices and everything's going up, just inflation in general. For closing out here, do you have any thoughts on this dynamic? Do you think that the miners might not do as well as people might think? because of this energy issue?
2: Well, I think gold miners almost sit in a different category than the rest of the miners. If you sort of look back at the story for gold miners, I mean, that trade, it really hasn't worked for the last few years or so. It hasn't really reacted in ways that investors would think. And so, you know, if you look at a price chart, it really has not kept up with a lot of the other commodity miners. And so I think that's also made investors a little bit less euphoric about some of the prospects for some of the gold miners. I mean, part of it is the margins are getting compressed, but gold miners also just don't have as great of you know, a long-term investment thesis as maybe You know, other assets like copper, nickel, lithium. So that's why I think gold miners haven't been able to keep up because, you know, generating free cash flow and making that story work. It's becoming harder and harder, right? Especially for the smaller ones. But more broadly, I think there is something there, you know, as oil prices and inflationary pressures have picked up. I mean, oil prices in the US are give or take $80 right now. I mean, That is a very high number considering the last time we saw triple digits was 2014 uh, for oil prices. So some of it is uh, OPEC has been uh, very conservative with some of their production policies, and they've been taking much more of like a wait-and-see approach rather than ramping up production. But in terms of how that affects a lot of these miners, I mean, I do think – combined with the supply chain the wage issues and then uh, you know permitting and potential political you know royalty shares that they may have to engage with if they're not in countries like the US with uh, more developed policies these are all going to tighten margins a bit right so really you're not looking right now at uh, the margin story and the operational processes as being sort of the key driver of some of these mining stocks. the real driver is, how can they expand the selling of the raw materials that they're actually looking to sell, right? Whether that's the growth story, good fundamentals, just making sure they have a you know wide base of customers to be able to sell to. Those are the real things that I'm looking for uh, and why I still think some of the miners are really attractive today. The second thing is a lot of these miners, I mean, unless you buy the really large diversified ones across multiple commodity streams... Some of them are fairly leveraged to the price of uh, the materials that they sell. So, as those material prices start going up, even though they may face operational margin pressures with, you know, inputs like oil prices going up, that's not going to be as big of a driver as, you know, the fact that the material that they're selling is going up in price just because they are leveraged to that. So, that's a factor that I'm keeping much more in mind than some of the supply chain issues right now I think one of the probably more broader like supply chain issues that I would be a little bit more worried about is just geopolitical risk right now and how that fits in so you know if you're operating heavily in a country like you know Chile or Peru where there clearly have been a lot of leftist rhetoric that is affecting you know the way businesses might be able to to deal over there, that certainly is, I think, a risk that could hold up, you know, your guidance and your forecast. So for example, we just saw even the other day, Serbia stopped a lithium project, right? And they- Oh,
0: they stopped it.
2: Yeah, they stopped it. Yeah. So, you know, certainly that could maybe change in the future, but anytime you have risks like that, that's more I think, a driver of some of the challenges that these companies are facing uh, as opposed to rising oil prices.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Rowan. It's always very illuminating talking to you. And yeah, this Rowan Reddy, research analyst at Global X, a New York based provider of global exchange traded funds. Rowan, do you have any closing thoughts for us?
2: for investors, I think the question I get the most is how do I really play these markets? Should I buy futures? Should I buy stocks? Should I buy funds? Personally, I mean, it really depends on the type of investor that you are. But if you are comfortable picking companies, I mean, maybe some of those single stocks work out for you. Futures is a bit of a different trade. You have to you know, be comfortable buying some of those futures. But, you know, there are some commodity futures like uranium and lithium that maybe are a little bit different where they don't have as developed of a market. Personally, I think, you know, the exchange traded fund ETF wrapper is pretty attractive for a lot of people who like the stocks themselves just because it's liquid. It's a little bit easier to trade and you can buy companies that are in international markets a little bit more easily than you can in, say, a
0: brokerage account. Global X has several ETFs, and their uranium ETF is one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, in the industry. At least it keeps showing up on my Google Finance. So uh, do check that out. Well, thanks again, Rowan, and let's talk again sometime soon.
2: Thanks a lot, Adrian.
0: And there you have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you once again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rohan Reddy. Thank you also to Dolgun Erdinebattar for sponsoring this week's episode in the CEO Spotlight. We hope to see him again soon. And don't forget... If you want to sign up to the next Global Mining Symposium, simply go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, share it with your friends, or leave us a review in the Apple Podcasts directory. Until next week, take care.